If you do not have a Bible, there should be a black one in the seat back in front of you. If you get to page 889, that's where we're going to be there. And I want to thank you uh, for being here. If you're a guest this morning, we're really uh, grateful that you're here. And uh, you should find a guest card in the seat back in front of you. Or you can just go to the welcome desk on your way out. Uh, just outside of those doors, uh, we have a gift for you. We want to thank you for coming. And we want to at least greet you and get to know you a little bit better. And so uh, please take advantage of that. Um, we're grateful uh, for everybody who's, who set aside this time, and uh, I'm going to ask that you uh, join me in a word of prayer as we launch out in the sermon. So let's pray. Father, we're thankful uh, for this day. We're thankful for another day of life, another day to have your breath in our lungs, another day to, to gather together uh, in person, Lord, to, to be here as your church. We're thankful for each person who's joined us online as well, and we pray that as we turn our attention to your word, that you, God, would speak loudest this morning. Uh, Father, you would, would move uh, mightiestly, God, that, that you would just push me and push the distractions of life out of the way, that you uh, would move through your word uh, to draw people to yourself, to reveal truth to us, and that we would respond humbly to you. And we ask uh, that you get the glory from all this, in Jesus' name, amen. So I'd like to start with a question uh, that you can ponder, which is simply this. How do you normally react when you're under a lot of pressure? Because it's, it's fascinating to me how people react differently, right? For some people, uh, pressure becomes like paralyzing or overwhelming. They just sort of kind of collapse in on themselves. For others, it's almost clarifying. It allows them to focus more and they perform even better. And there are different types of pressure, obviously, that cause a variety of reactions. But there's one uh, situation I was reading about this week. And I want you just to, to imagine yourself in this situation this morning. And whenever uh, Peace Corps members would travel to Brazil, they'd have kind of an opening orientation where they're given instructions on how to navigate life in the jungle. And one such uh, uh, section of lessons was how, how to, what you do when you encounter dangerous animals. And one of these was what to do when you encounter a hungry python, right? Now, I don't know what you know about me, but me and snakes, we have an understanding, okay? I'm terrified of them. They understand that, and they keep terrifying me. But a python, a python can grow to 33 feet long and weigh up to 250 pounds. This is literally my nightmare. Okay, and then I want you, to, I want to read the instructions that were given to Peace Corps members that if you were to encounter one that wanted to eat you and, and, and think about whether you could handle this, all right? The first thing starts with, it just says, remember not to run away. All right, I'm probably failing that right off the start. And the reason you, can, the reason you should remember not to run away is the python is faster than you. And so here's what you're to do, okay? The thing to do is lie flat on the ground, on your back, with your feet together, arms at your side, and your head well down. The python will then try to push its head under you, experimenting at every possible point. And they underline the next part for you. Keep calm during this. It goes on. You must let him swallow your foot. It is quite painless and will take a long time. If you lose your head and begin to struggle, he will quickly whip his claws around you and therefore strangle you. But if you keep calm and still, he will go on swallowing. Wait patiently until he's swallowed up to your knee. You guys doing all right with this, all right? Then carefully take out your knife and insert it into the extended side of his mouth and with a quick rip, slit him up. Now, I've got lots of questions, okay? I'd have a lot of follow-up questions, but I think the only one I'd ask is this. What's the fastest way that thing can kill me and how do I make it happen? Because there's no way I'm staying calm enough to survive through that, right? Now, human beings, how human beings respond to pressure is fascinating to me. We, and we see this probably most clearly in athletics, right? The two most famous kickers in Indianapolis Colts history are Mike Vanderjat and Adam Vinatieri. 
Right, Mike Vanderjet, when he retired, retired as the most accurate kicker in the history of the National Football League. I mean, he made more of his kicks than anybody else by percentage, but he's not remembered as a good kicker. And do you know why? Because it seemed the bigger the moment was, the smaller he got. And this culminated, probably his most famous kick was a 46-yard field goal in the closing seconds in a playoff game against the Steelers. This was probably the best Colts team that was ever assembled, but they didn't win the Super Bowl because that field goal was to tie the game and put it in overtime. And Vanderjack didn't just miss the kick. It almost left the entire Hoosier Dome. It's one of the worst kicks you'll ever see in your entire life. I'm not one of those people who think I could ever do what a professional athlete is. I could have done a better kick than Mike Vanderjack on that day, right? Now, Adam Vinatieri wasn't as accurate as Mike Vanderjack, especially during the regular season. But the bigger the moment got, the better he got. Twice, he made game-winning field goals as the clock expired to win the Super Bowl. Twice, he made a game-winning kick as the clock expired in an actual blizzard. More important the moment was, the bigger the pressure, the better he got. It's why he, and not the most accurate kicker in history, is widely considered the greatest kicker of all time. Because there's something that pressure does that we don't like to admit. Pressure is a lot like squeezing a sponge. You look at a sponge, you might not know whether it's dry or whether it's soaked, or if you can tell it's soaked, you might not know whether it's clean water or dirty water, but if you squeeze it, right, then everything that's inside is revealed, it comes out. And so when you're under duress, right, when you're feeling the press, what is revealed in you? What would you like to be revealed? You see, sometimes life just puts us under the press, doesn't it? Demands pile up, stressors come, responsibilities stack up, people are against you, tough decisions lay before you. The question is, when you're squeezed, what comes out? Today in Mark 3, we get to see Jesus under an immense amount of pressure. And I have two goals for this passage. Number one, that we can just spend some time together just observing him and how he responds, and then to end up just being in awe of him this morning. And then secondly, as we close, just consider how we should respond to what we see from Jesus here. And so I'm going to invite uh, Brooke Hogan up to read today's passage to us. She's going to be reading uh, Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. And if you are physically, physically capable, would you please stand with Brooke to honor the reading of God's word this morning. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee And a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so that the crowd wouldn't crush him. Since he had healed many, all who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. You guys have a seat. Please keep your Bibles open there. We're going to uh, be referring a lot to that story this morning. And then anything else uh, we'll put on the screens for you. But last week, if you were here, uh, Brandon covered for us verses 1 through 6 in Mark 3. Okay? And uh, I want, it, was, it was the story of Jesus healing uh, the man on the Sabbath in the synagogue. Uh, it's kind of a showdown with the religious leaders. But I want to remind you how that story ends. So look at verse 6. Okay, it says, immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him. And not just plotting against him, how? How they might kill him. 
Okay, so the Herodians, we, we haven't been introduced to them yet in the book of Mark. The Herodians were a group of Jews who actually supported the reign of King Herod. Right, they, weren't, uh, they weren't a spiritual group. They weren't a religious group. They were more of a political group. And since they weren't religious, they were often despised by the religious leaders. They were often seen as, as traitors by, uh, by pure Israelites because they aligned themselves with Herod. But now these two groups that hate each other are teaming up. And the reason they're teaming up is because they found someone they hate more. Is they hate Jesus. And so they're, they're, they're actively, by verse 6 in chapter 3 of Mark, right? They're actively plotting against him, trying to figure out a way to kill him, okay? In addition, right, pressure continues to rise from the Roman leaders. Because the one thing that Rome hated more than anything were large crowds gathering, Okay, because anytime a large crowd could gather, then it could turn into an uprising, and an uprising could turn into a revolt, and that's what Rome was paranoid against. And so they didn't like any time large crowds would gather, any person that would create a stir, any time that would happen, they'd just take the guy out. And so what has happened is no matter where Jesus grows, these huge crowds start following him. Right, that's what Brooke read for us in verses 7 and 8. Right, these geographical markers tell us that wherever he went, this, this large crowd came from the north, a large crowd came from the south, a large crowd came from the east. Right? They're, they're coming from all these directions, and they're, and, they're, and they're pressing on him, and this is not anything that he, this is not any kind of attention he would want. In addition to that, they aren't there for his reasons. Right? They're there because they've heard the stories about him. They're there because they want to be healed or see people be healed. And so from every side here, starting in verse 7 and Mark 3, from every side there are things crashing in on Jesus. There are throngs of people pressing in on him, demanding something from him. There are multiple powerful groups of people plotting as how they might kill him and get rid of him. And he cannot get a single moment to himself. Now, can you imagine that press? Can you imagine the strain of that, the burden of that, the drain and weight that had to be on him? And yet I want us to look at the Jesus we're revealed in this passage. Because it'd be easy to read Mark and, and get to these sections and say, well, this is just a filler transition. Let's jump right to where he chooses his 12 disciples. But if you ever use a passage to teach you, what it, to, to see what it teaches you about God, that's a really good way to use it. And it'll be worth it. And what we see of Jesus here is, number one, he remained compassionate. Think about how easy it would have been for him just to be annoyed. Literally, Rome, which is the greatest power in the day, the religious leaders of his people, the Herodians, they're all threatening you, they're all plotting to kill you, and you just, your, your desire is just to withdraw for a little bit, just to get away, to let the dust settle, to let the stare die down, and just have a moment to breathe. And from every direction, all the people are rushing towards you. It's bad enough. Look what verse 9 tells us. He told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him. Why? So the crowd wouldn't crush him. They're not, they're not respecting personal space here. Okay, they're, they're coming for him. It's that level of hysteria. It's they all want something from him. They're not there for him. None of them are there to bless him or encourage him. They all want something from him. And yet, Jesus doesn't get indignant. He doesn't get annoyed. He doesn't get bitter. He's compassionate. And he makes room for them. He makes space for them. He heals some. He casts out demons and others. He teaches all of them. This is remarkable on another level because there, there is a, in addition to all he was feeling, there's a pressure that we could probably relate with that, that comes just with responsibility. That anytime you care for or responsible for others, that weight can be heavy. 
In fact, there's this, it's, it's kind of funny, but there was a study uh, several decades ago done on, on a monkey, right? And, and they, strapped, they strapped these monkeys in chairs and they turned on a light and they had a plate underneath their feet and 20 seconds after the light came on, an electrical shock would go through the monkey's feet and kind of jar him a little bit. Then they also placed a lever by the chair and the idea was to see how long it would take for the monkey to learn that after the light came on, if you pulled the lever, there'd be no shock. And they did it with multiple different ones and they all quickly learned and pulled the lever and it was super easy and they all passed the test. And then they changed the experiment a little bit. They brought in two monkeys and it was almost the same setup. But they gave the lever to the monkey that wasn't going to be getting shocked. And so he had to figure out that when the light came on, the other monkey was going to be shocked and he had to pull the lever in order to spare, spare the other one. And what they found was that the one that was responsible for saving the other one from harm actually developed stomach ulcers from the stress of this. The monkeys in the previous study that only had to save themselves were fine and had no ill effects because the weight of caring for someone else was felt even in primates. Now I mention that because the call to follow Jesus, if you do it right, is a call of progression. You start as a believer, then you progress to becoming a disciple, then you progress to become a disciple maker. And all of our teaching, all our studies, all our groups around here, they're all built around this goal. And this, the idea is this, that as you grow in your walk with Jesus, you're given greater levels of influence by our king. People that we pour into, people that we care for, people that we shepherd and feel responsible for, people that we are teaching and modeling and showing in addition to that, life just does this, right? You start as a child and you're dependent on your parents for everything and then you grow to the point where you're an adult and now you have to take care of you. And then if you, get, then if you have a family, all of a sudden you have all these other humans that you're responsible for now, right? It's the same sort of process. And while we won't ever get this perfect and why there's way more out of our control than we'd ever like to admit, right? if we are in positions of influence and we're not finding our rest and provision and identity in Jesus, there's a whole lot of danger that can come from that. Because that weight of that responsibility can begin to have an effect on you. You can start becoming skeptical or prideful or angry. You can begin to carry yourself like those people owe you something. You can get hurt or feel rejected or then given to apathy. It's why Paul David Tripp brilliantly writes, you should never look horizontally for that which you can only find vertically. You know what he means by that? He's saying you can't look to people to give you what only God can give you. That our identity, our purpose, our stain, and our hope, our hope, our future, they're only found in Jesus Christ. And he's taking care of all that we would ever need. And that, what that does is that frees us up immensely to love people well without ever giving them the power to destroy us. Jesus' identity was secure in his Father. He had no doubt what his purpose, no doubt what his mission was. He had no doubt who he was. And so even when people came to him for the wrong reasons, he wasn't affected by that. He was freed up to love them. He's freed up to be compassionate to them. He had all he would ever need from the Father. And the great news is this, so do we. So he remained compassionate. Secondly, he kept offering them the best thing. This crowd is pressing in on them. They're coming for the healing. They're coming for the show. They're coming for comfort and for an easier life. And instead of running them off, he makes space for them. And then he pushes out from the shore and then he offers them what they actually need. He kept offering himself and sharing his truth and his gospel because he knew what was most important. Do you know the Bible tells us what's most important? That's kind of an important thing to understand, right? 1 Corinthians 15 Paul writes, for I passed on to you, and here's the phrase, as most important. Paul's saying, what I'm about to write is more important than anything else, 
right? It's that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now that aspect of Jesus' story, that is his death and burial resurrection, why would that be the most important thing? Well, you need to understand his purpose in coming. Because every single human being is a sinner. Romans chapter three, that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. We all fall short of God's standard. And in sinning, what we're doing is we're actually rebelling against God. And God is holy, which means he's perfect in every way. So by his nature, he cannot tolerate sin. Which means that our sin is the single greatest threat in our life. Right? My sin is the reason I'm going to die one day. My sin, if it's not paid for, that debt that I owe God because of it is not covered, it's the reason that I will go to hell for all eternity. And worse than that, since I'm a sinner, right, I cannot pay my price. I can't make myself perfect again. And so on my own, I am desperate and I am hopeless and I am helpless. Which is why God sent Jesus Christ. That God took on human form in his son Jesus. And Jesus then lived the sinless life that I have not and could not. And since he was a sinner, right, he, he could die. His death could pay the price for others. He could cover other people's debt. Which is why the most important thing is that Jesus died and rose again. Because his death will cover the debt for sin for any who believe in him. And his resurrection will then give them the power over death. And they will be granted eternal life in heaven forever. And these crowds came to Jesus and what they were looking for was something less than what he was willing to give them. What they were looking for was temporary healing. What they were looking for was temporary comfort. What they were looking for was a temporary solution. What he was offering was eternal. Eternal healing, eternal comfort, eternal solutions. And I want you to notice here, he's patient and he's loving, he's long-suffering. He even grants the request of many of them because he cares. But he kept offering them what was best. You see, this is the heart of God to us. He wants us to approach him. He invites our prayers. He wants us to ask him for things. But when we do, it's incredibly important that we remember who he is. It's important that we remember that whatever he wants to do in our lives is better for us than what we want, even if we can't see it. And so Jesus Christ came to save your soul from sin and death and hell. He did not come to be your genie or some spiritual ATM. His purpose is not to give me what I want. He loves me enough to give me what I need. And so every time I approach God in my heart, I need to allow space and freedom for him to do as he pleases. Whether that's grant my request just as I asked for it, reject it outright, or change it because he knows best. And the hard reality is this, that if all I ever got from God was everything I asked for and none of what he planned for me, I'd be way worse off. And by the way, we need, we need to know this, right? The same thing that Jesus offered those crowds, he, he offers to us today. If you believe in him, your sins will be forgiven in full. You'll be an adopted child of God and you'll be granted eternal life in heaven for, forever with him. So he stayed compassionate, right? He kept offering them what they needed. And then thirdly, we see that he stayed in control. All of this pressure that, that, that was mounted on him changed nothing about Jesus, Change nothing about his mission. Take note of some of these details, right? We see that he healed some, but not all. Now, we aren't told the reasons for this, right? And this can beg a lot of questions, but we'll talk more about this as we go through the book of Mark. What we need to understand is that God operates on levels that are far above us. 
And he, he's working in, on, on, in ways that we can't fathom and on planes that we can't reach. And so the right response to that isn't to make him come down and work in a way that I can understand, but just to receive his sovereignty and praise him for it. Right? Because he's good and his plans are good. Secondly, Jesus silenced any demons, right? As he cast them out of people, freeing them from the slavery of oppression, he silenced the demons because they were going to identify who he truly was. Right? And the reason why is Jesus is in the process of progressively revealing his true identity because look at the hysteria already, right? He has a timeline. Jesus is not afraid of dying. It's why he came, right? But he has to give up his life at the time set by the Father in advance. And so despite what it looks like, he's still controlling the hysteria, Thirdly, he stayed true to what his father sent him to do. These people wanted healings. They wanted a military ruler. They wanted an earthly king. And he keeps teaching. He keeps pushing out from the shore a little bit and telling them about the kingdom he's established. And he keeps marching right towards the cross. Now, why did he have to die in the exact day that he did and not before? Why did he heal some and not others? Why did he receive the crowds and not rush them off here? And another time he'll receive the crowds and say something that caused them to send off. Why did he choose the 12 that he chose to be his disciples? Why did he come the exact moment he came? Why hasn't he returned yet? When will he? I have no idea. And you don't either. But he does. And that's enough. Because he's in control. And if he says you need something, by the way, you better believe you need it. And he says that you need his forgiveness. That means you need to believe in Jesus Christ and ask him to save you and his death to forgive you and his resurrection to grant you eternal life. You need that. When he answers prayers the way you wanted, when he answers prayers the exact way that you didn't want, and he answers prayers in some way that you never expected, that is him telling you what you needed. Receive that. Receive it with submission and gratitude and worship. He's not us. And thank God he isn't. He doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us any explanation. And yet he's so incredibly gracious and loving to us. And he's already given us all that we would ever need. What's left is just us receiving it. Now I want us to take a moment just to really marvel at what we see in Jesus here. While he's under immense pressure from every direction, he remains calm. He remains completely in control. He doesn't get distracted. He doesn't lose focus. He remains patient and loving and compassionate to all who come to him. It's remarkable. Jesus is remarkable. He's amazing. Don't ever forget that. But I told you to start, I had two goals. One, I wanted to just observe that and just be in awe of him for a moment this morning. But secondly, I want us to consider how we should respond in light of what we see in Jesus here. Because I don't know about you, but, but often when I'm pressed like a sponge, what comes out does not match what I see from Jesus here. When I'm under press, what often comes out is irritability or defensiveness or being quick or short with others or being impatient or being incredibly discouraged, all leading to some cycle of guilt and shame and apathy. And that's what I want to close this sermon with, with a single plea to myself with the hopes that it will benefit you and bless you as well. And the plea to myself is this, do not turn inward for strength. Jesus Christ is remarkable. And all, and all of this should make this beyond obvious. I'm not him. I'm not capable of being like him on my own. And so if I want to be more like him, I can't look to me to get there. Does that make sense? 
See, personal responsibility and effort and drive and pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, those can all be good things, but they make terrible gods. Because when you're under the press, right, if the only thing you've ever poured into you are, you, are of you and by your strength and by your own willpower, you're not going to like what's revealed. Because self-improvement is a poor strategy for lasting hope. Luke 6, Jesus says this, a good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart, for his mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. You see, it's at those moments of of highest pressure, highest demand, highest stress, that's what's deep in our hearts is actually what is revealed. And Jesus is telling us here that what is in our hearts is what we've put in there. And so the question is, what are you pouring into your heart? What are you investing into your soul? What truth are you investing into your life? What story do you keep telling yourself? Because if it's all about you and your own strength and your own capacity and your own mental willpower, you're going to fall short. That will let you down. But look at Jesus Christ. Look at who he is. Look at what he can do. And if you're investing his word into your life, you're, you're immersing yourself in his teachings and his truth. You're, you're abiding in his presence. You're looking to him to sustain you. Now you're on to something. In fact, he tells us that you can't do this without him. John 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine and you're the branches, right? Just as a branch gets connected to the vine, right? You, the one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. And this is the cold hard truth because you can do nothing without me. He, he didn't hide from this. He told us. And so I guess the lasting question I want to lay before you today is this. What would it look like for you to have more of Jesus this year? What would it look like for you to experience that? Is it, is it starting a Bible reading plan? It's, not, it's never too late to do that. Maybe, you've, maybe you haven't ever done one or maybe you've done one and then fallen off and lost it and you need to pick one back up. We can hand you one today before you leave. Is it joining a group so you can meet with other people who are trying to follow Jesus and trying to, trying to be more like him and so you can talk more about his word and go deep together with him and have community? Is it asking somebody to meet with you and just ask them questions like, how do I go deeper in this? How, how can I get more of Jesus in my life? Is it committing to serving at a level you haven't before? Is it, is it saying, God's been good enough to me, it's time for me to disciple someone else. I'm going to pour into somebody else this year. Is it having a more intentional prayer strategy than waking up and hoping you don't forget to that day? See, when you're pressed like a sponge, what comes out is whatever you've been saturating in. So what do you saturate in? What would it look like for you to have more of Jesus this year? And the second question is this, what could that change? I mean, how would your home feel different if your responses to your children and your spouse sounded a whole lot more like Jesus than it would sound like you? What would your, what would your relationship look like if you actually adopted the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, according to Philippians 2, where you considered others more important than yourself? What would that do for the relationships in your life? What would your life be like if when you're under the press, right, when the stress is highest, that there's an inner peace and an inner calmness in you that's untouchable? How much deeper would your joy be? How much more secure would your hope be? How much more fulfilling would your life be if you were more rooted in Jesus Christ? Or if you haven't, just imagine with me what it would be like to have your sins completely forgiven in full, to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you were going to heaven and that you're an adopted child of God because you gave your life to Jesus. 
Jesus Christ came and he offered himself and with him comes everything. And he's still offering himself to us today. It's up to us to receive. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful for the fact that your son came and, and took on human form. God lived as one of us. That did, he did not sin. And he died in our place and rose again to offer us this tremendous offering that we could find life and we could find forgiveness and we could find eternity in you and in nowhere else. And so, Lord, I first pray for anybody who, within the sound of my voice, who've, who've never actually just dedicated their life to Jesus. They've never believed in him and trusted in him to save them. Lord, maybe they've been in church. Maybe they have a religious background. Maybe there's something they know about you, but they've never, ever asked you to forgive them of their sins and save their soul. May today be their day of salvation. And then, God, for the rest of us, Lord, as we, as we approach uh, what still is the outset of a new year, God, would you give us a vision for what it would look like to have more of you in our life this year? Would, you, would your spirit move around this room and, and bring just really targeted application for what this could look like for each one of us to approach you at a deeper level this year, to, ha- to be more rooted in you, to be more connected to you so that we can experience the benefit of the fellowship of our Savior? Would you do this not just for our sake, but for those we live with, for those that we're going to interact with, for those that you want us to influence? And God, would you do it for the glory of Jesus' name? And we pray this in his powerful name. Amen. Before we dismiss you, we're going to give you a couple of moments in prayer. And, and we're just going to ask you to pray and ask God that, that, those questions, right? What would it look like for you to have more of Jesus this year? And a couple of encouragements for you uh, as, as we do that. First of all, uh, group leaders, this is, this, these questions, right? What would it look like for you to have more of Jesus this year? And, and what do you think that would change? It's a great way to start your group times this week, to just get your people thinking about this and talking about this and see how the Lord may lead. And secondly, as you pray about this morning, there's something God puts on your heart that, that, that you don't really know how to respond to, right? That you, uh, you, you maybe you're interested in a reading plan or joining a group or maybe you wanna know what it'd be like to give your life to Jesus for the first time, and you, you're not really sure about that. That's literally why we're here, okay? We're here to help you have more Jesus in your life, and so do not hesitate to ask us. Find us before you leave. We have resources for you. Set up a meeting with us. We want to help you take these steps closer to him in your life, so this is your time with him. Uh, please uh, take advantage of it.